Hello and welcome to Valuable Conversations, a student-produced podcast from UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. I'm Justin Byrold. Today, PhD student Nai Kalema and I talk to IIPP Visiting Professor of Practice, Damon Silvers. For over 30 years, Damon has been a leading voice in the U.S. labor movement. He served as the Director of Policy and Special Counsel for the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of unions in the United States. This summer, Damon did several really, really interesting and good lectures uh, at the IIPP about the relationship between the labor movement, climate change, and innovation. You know, at IIPP, we often talk about how in order to address climate change, in order to fix climate change, we really need a lot of innovation and innovation that's directed in an appropriate way so that it actually achieves the goals that we're setting out to achieve. And what Damon brings to this conversation is an analysis of how the labor movement can either be a catalyst for the change that we want, or it can actually be in opposition. And (laughs) aligning those things is really, really important. So highly recommend checking out those lectures. On this podcast, uh, we do talk about that, but we also talk about Damon's life story Uh, how he got involved in labor activism during the dining hall worker strikes and anti-apartheid protests when he was an undergraduate at Harvard, and uh, how he decided to make that his life's work. We talk at length about many historical and present-day aspects of the labor movement and how the labor movement has changed historically um, over time and where it might be going. It's a really timely and interesting conversation. And to make it even more timely, um, Damon is also, uh, he's a lawyer and a constitutional scholar. So we asked him to talk to us about the recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings, uh, which have have had a a really uh, devastating effect on a lot of people right now, especially around abortion uh, and also things like environmental regulation. So Damon wrote a really, really good essay about this on his Substack. I've put the link in the description. And so we decided to talk about that. And uh, we ended up talking about that actually a lot longer than we thought. Um, This is a really long interview. It's the longest one we've done so far on this podcast. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the editorial aspect of it, about uh, how much of it we wanted to keep. And ultimately, we really liked the entire conversation and got a lot out of it and felt like we really understood Damon a lot better by the end of it. So rather than cutting it into pieces and putting out multiple separate episodes, uh, I've just provided a few timestamps in the description. So if you want to skip around to different areas that might interest you, check those out. You know, Damon's lectures, both at the IAPP and then also if you just Google his name, you'll see he has many, many lectures and podcasts that he's recorded before. But I felt like this conversation gave me uh, a lot better of a perspective on who he is as a person, what are his values, and what he's really trying to do, and and how his work aligns with the broader work of the IAPP. So really hope you enjoy our conversation with Damon Silvers. Okay. So, Damon Silvers, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, really, really uh, happy to be here. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, so are you in London for the summer? or what? what um, well, I go back and forth between the United Kingdom and the United States. Okay. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I have a visiting professorship, which is why we're all here right. uh, talking. Um, and then uh, I, I'm a senior advisor to the, uh, to the AFL-CIO and one of the U.S. The US trade union body. 
and and one of the U.S.'s largest unions, uh, the American Federation of Teachers. Um, so um, sometimes I need to be there, and sometimes I need to be here. <laughs> right, because so, you also have a position at Newcastle. Is that right? <clears throat> yeah, I, I have a visiting a professorship appointment there in social justice. Um, my partner, Chian Wara, is the MP for Newcastle Central. Oh. Uh, and so we spend, uh, we spend uh, our weekends loosely defined uh, uh, in Newcastle, <laughs> typically. Um, she is very devoted to talking with her constituents every weekend. Uh, and uh, so if you, if you want to know where I am on Saturday morning, it's knocking on doors in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, we have a lot that we want to talk to you about, but I guess could we just start out talking about uh, wh where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So uh, I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but I grew up in the sense of going to high school and that sort of thing in, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, which is, um, as some of our listeners may know, was the capital of the Confederacy. Uh, right. And so uh, uh, when I was growing up, there was a 150 foot high uh, column to the unknown Confederate soldier mm. uh, at the end of my street. Uh, really? <laughs> mm. Wow. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, 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 one of the great learning experiences of my adult life was to understand that uh, my neighborhood, which had been kind of, uh, which had had, this culture as an, as an object, it, if, you, if you didn't understand the politics, is, is quite nice and kind of you know, yeah. graces the neighborhood. But in reality, it was part of an effort to repress, to suppress uh, the memory of the, the role that our neighborhood had played in the, uh, the freeing of, uh, of slaves uh, in Richmond, uh, which really began literally on that spot uh, where African-American soldiers captured the city uh, and liberated, in many cases, because they had been, they had grown up in Richmond themselves and had run, and run away, uh, they liberated mm -hmm. their own families. Uh, mm -hmm. The whole history of that, which happened right there, uh, was kind of replaced by this giant Confederate statue. Wow. Uh, and I didn't really un fully understand that uh, until I was an adult and had a chance to do some of my own reading. Right, wow. sure. That's pretty amazing. Like, um, my mom is from Richmond, Virginia area. Oh, and so I didn't know this history, but that's really, really cool to kind of hear about that, that um, history. It, it's, yeah. there's, I mean... When I was growing up, the history of Richmond was something that was sort of possessed by very conservative and racist kinds of political forces. Right. Uh, and when people talked about our history in Richmond, they meant, you know, Robert E. Lee and right. and, and a and a kind of fantasized sort of gone with the wind uh, sort of notion of uh, of the yeah of of the past of slavery, um, and what I, I I did my undergraduate thesis uh, on the pre-Civil War history of Richmond. Wow. Um, and what I learned from doing that was that Richmond had this whole other history that effectively had been suppressed um, uh, for a variety of different reasons, a history uh, a history of slave resistance and uh, mm. um, and of slaves and of Richmond's African American community liberating itself. Mm -hmm. um, not, you know, <laughs> the way they did it was that, you know, young men ran away and joined various Union Army units, mm -hmm. uh, and then they came back, uh, uh, you know, in uniform. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. there are accounts of people 
uh, literally liberating their parents. I mean, uh, wow. soldiers coming down, coming down the streets that I walked every day and, uh, and liberating their parents. There were spy rings uh, set up mm -hmm. in my neighborhood by anti-slavery whites working with their working with slaves in their household. Mm -hmm. They, they uh, infiltrated the White House of the Confederacy and passed mm -hmm. information back to the Union. Wow. Um, th there was this really rich uh, history uh, of, of liberation that nobody that I, I mean, I, I grew up in a largely African-American neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew this history. None of my friends growing up knew it. Sure. Uh, similarly, there was a history after the Civil War of labor organizing by freed slaves with white workers in Richmond, particularly mm -hmm. Irish and German immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, the city was controlled by the, by the Knights of Labor in the 1880s. Mm. Again, just like vanished. I mean, just a, a, a completely suppressed uh, uh, history of Richmond. I've since met people whose families were part of that, who maintained those memories, you know, within their families. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't find... You know that that history simply was not taught. It was yeah. Um, what it reminds me of actually uh, mm -hmm. is now, um, you know, what I know, for example, about the way that history is suppressed in Spain, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. right? Where yeah. um, there's sort of this sort of unspoken thing of we just never we just never discuss the Civil War, right? We all yeah. know all about it, <laughs> yeah. but we never talk about it. Yeah, R Richmond's history was a little bit like that. Huh. So, uh, what brought your family there? Oh well, we're we were we were newcomers. I mean, uh, um, my uh, my father was a physical chemist, mm -hmm. uh, oh. um, which is really um, more like a physicist. But uh, he uh, got a he was hired uh, as a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is right. a large state university in Richmond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in the mid seventies, and uh, and he got tenure there, and that's why we live there. That that nice. makes sense. So, when did you first start to get involved, uh, get interested in you know public policy and um, and I guess unions or labor? Well, um, you know, public policy is a funny term. Right. Uh, you don't call it that when you first get interested in it, right? You're just like, why does this happen the way that it happens? Right. Well, politics was a staple of my family uh, and, mm. and of all of my parents' friends. And, it, it, you know, it was what we, it's what we, uh, you know, ate with our breakfast. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, now, interestingly, not, we had, I knew some people growing up who were actively involved in public life, but mm -hmm. not very many. I, I I did not grow up, you know, as some people did, with you know congressmen and senators at the dinner table. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I, I grew up around people who were very intensely interested in in, in politics, um, uh, but whose lives were, you know, they had other jobs. They they uh, uh, act mostly academics. Um, uh, my grandfather was very interested in politics, and he was a, a congregational minister. Uh, uh, wow. Uh, but you know, politics was a uh, politics was a constant subject of conversation when I was growing up, and and I had political opinions from the time I was like six years old. <laughs> uh, uh, um, right. I w was, you know, I I came of age, so to speak, um, right at the time that Ronald Reagan became president of the United States, and mm -hmm. Reagan's administration had immediate. Um, <clears throat> uh, had immediate impact on the education budgets right. uh, um, of America's public schools, and particularly in states like Virginia, where the state government really didn't value education very much. Mm -hmm. um, 
particularly uh, education in predominantly African-American communities, which is what Richmond was at right. the time I was growing up. Uh, and so, you know, I, in, when I was in high school, I was involved in uh, a lot of organizing and protest around school budgets. Already. Uh, and and wow. so, I, you know, my first experience of public policy, you know, of real like hands on public policy mm -hmm. was trying to keep my high school open uh, when it was under budget threat yeah. uh, wow. in 1981. And we were successful at that. Um, for me, uh, public policy was always kind of as a young person, public policy was always intertwined with protest. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. never, I didn't really see it as a. I mean, I, yeah. I, I experienced it as an intellectual exercise, but I also it was in, inextricably sort of intertwined with where do you get power? Of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, you know, it's, um, you might notice that that actually is a theme of my uh, of my lectures here at UCL. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's a certain continuity. Um, but really, my early uh, intellectual interests were much more formulated in terms of history and sociology and, and, sure. and, and philosophy, not so much public policy as such. Right. Um, uh, but um, but yeah, I think I think thinking back on it, that fight over school funding after Reagan was yeah. the first the first time that I like, you know, sat down with public officials and talked about, you know, p policy decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, I was sixteen. Wow, that's that's a, <laughs> that's pretty really remarkable. Cool. Yeah, and and then you know I see also according to Wikipedia, which I want to fact check this right now. <laughs> My Wikipedia entry is pretty old. <laughs> is it, yeah, well, yeah, it doesn't mention UCL, so maybe we need to update. Well, that. yeah, if but, somebody wanted to fix it, I'd be that'd be fine with me. I, I believe the rules are that I can't. <laughs> right, right, right. But it says that you were in in college as an undergrad. You were both um, active in the anti-apartheid movement, and also that you represented dining hall workers in the negotiations with the university, which was Harvard, right? <laughs> I don't true? know who put that in. <laughs> um, I think it's on the Harvard Business School website. Uh, oh, really? That. All right. Um, I did not represent dining hall workers. I was I I um, I helped. Uh, right. I was a I, I was a student supporter of the dining mm -hmm. hall workers. Okay. Um, and remain an alumni supporter of the dining hall workers. I was actually on picket lines with them nice. uh, some years about four years ago when they really? when they successfully blocked. Uh, an effort by Harvard to substantially cut their health care. Yeah. Um, again, for people listen, a lot of people who are listening to this may not be aware, but in the United States, your health care is tied to your employment. Yeah. Right? It's not like the U U United Kingdom where, you know, everybody yeah. has health care. <laughs> uh, anyway, but yes, I was, uh, I was actually a dining hall worker at Harvard uh, in a very small way. Um, I, I, it's funny now that I'm not sure what the logic of this really was, but I guess it just shows something about inflation. I, I worked one night a week at the Harvard dining halls, you know, washing dishes and, uh, and, um, uh, I think I was paid $15 a week by check. Uh, and, oh wow! <laughs> and that money was meaningful at the time. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but what really happened there, and it had a lifelong impact. I, I I talk about this a lot when I'm asked, sort of like, how did you get involved in the labor movement? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, the truth is, I was involved in the labor movement from high school. I I yeah. I, I had just the most. I had just the greatest good fortune when I was in high school to meet. Uh, and be influenced by people who were part of, in different ways and from some very different kinds of places, part of the effort to re to build a progressive South after the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, an effort that 
an effort that seemed like it was it might succeed in the 1970s and early 80s, but ultimately was overwhelmed by right wing politics. Right. Um, uh, but I, I was around that <clears throat> as a young person, and I met the most courageous and 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 uh, good hearted people uh, in the context of that. Yeah. Um, and um, and so and part of that, uh, my high school. Uh, my high school uh, social studies teacher, uh, Roger Gray, uh, uh, took me and some friends of our friend, uh, students, you know, fellow students of mine, took us all uh, on because he, he was the teachers' union rep in Richmond, oh. and in in Richmond at that time, and and until about two years ago, uh, the teachers were forbidden from uh, actually meaning actually organizing and collectively bargaining. There was it was against the law for the teachers to bargain collectively with the city, and against the law for the city to bargain with them. It was a state law, and the city was subject to it. Mm -hmm. But the teachers had a union anyway that tried, did its best yeah. and, and uh, you know, did its best to represent people and, and give them voice, but they had no formal rights. And uh, so my, my social studies teacher was the union rep for our school, and, and, and he uh, invited us to go along to this giant labor march and rally, Solidarity Day, 1981. Wow. And we all rode on a bus that was chartered by the United Auto Workers uh, from, uh, from Fredericksburg, which is mm -hmm. uh, uh, halfway between Richmond and Washington. Um, I also uh, got the chance to do support work for the United Farm Workers, courtesy of a German conscientious objector who had been sent as part of his alternative service to organize on behalf of the farm workers in Richmond. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I had these kinds of experiences in high school, but what really, but just to come back to the, to the Harvard dining halls. Um, so, you know, the Harvard dining hall workers union uh, elected new leadership around the time that I went to school there, and they had a much more militant approach to or, to bargaining with the with the university, and there was a lot of talk of a strike, uh, and oh. the, and you know I I was <laughs> some people may find this hard to believe, but I was kind of a shy and awkward uh, uh, eighteen year old freshman at Harvard. Mm. Uh, I, I was a long way from home, um, sure, uh, and uh, and I was just trying to figure it all out, right. And, you know, the dining hall, my, my Wednesday nights at washing dishes in the dining hall was like, in the, in the emotional arc of my week, th this was sort of like the low point. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, sure, sure. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I was, people who worked there all were sort of, I mean, they sort of ignored me, but they were sort of friendly, but yeah, not, sure. not nothing special. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the, the university is, the, the university is, uh, the, 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 the tensions are escalating around the contract, and mm -hmm. um, and I was aware of that through student politic political groups, and they they handed out you know to student supporters they handed out buttons you know supporting you know I support the dining hall workers, mm -hmm. so I wore one of these buttons to work, and it was like <laughs> it was like I had set off an earthquake. Um, for start for starters, the manager who's always been kind of like you know kind of a he was always nice to me, so I spent the whole shift closeted in his office on the phone with the big bosses and all the workers were like overjoyed they all like hugged and kissed me and stuff and i like all of a sudden like i was um you know visible and yeah. and, it, yeah. and it also became clear to me how much this mattered mm -hmm. right that that yeah. uh you know i mean for me right the bargaining you know these negotiations were for me as an 18 year old i mean these negotiations were one cause among many and this mm -hmm. kind of thing sure and then I, I experienced sort of 
personally, the intensity of what uh, of what labor organizing and labor negotiating means for right. working people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in some ways that was that moment uh, in that kitchen was the defining moment in my life professionally. I mean, that it, it made it, really? the implications of that uh, and the fact that every experience I've ever had since has reinforced what the, the meaning of that moment mm-hmm. uh, really uh, just profoundly shaped who I am. Something that comes to mind when you tell me the story is this idea of community. So being able to kind of forge community through this kind of shared struggle. And I find that kind of really moving. I also am really interested, it seems like your experience kind of disrupts this narrative of young people being apathetic about politics and what's going on with uh, regard to how power is moving around them, but this is definitely not your story. <laughs> you saw yourself as a person who could be an agent of change and be engaged with others around these struggles. And I, I think that, where did that come from? Was that always there? Like, I'm very interested in learning about that because you started at such a young age as well. Well, I mean, I would say a couple things about that. I mean, <laughs> It requires a certain. I, I'm I'm afraid to say that 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 kind of confidence, which in some ways I had from a very young age, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that I was not a, a socially adept person, right? Mm-hmm. That that I there was a part of me that there was a part of me that could stand up in front of a crowd uh, at the age of 16 mm-hmm. and move people to action. That was more that was way ahead of the part of me that could make, you know, that could, you know, sit at a bar and talk to people. I mean, it was, there was a, there was a disjuncture there. Um, you know, I, I, I was, I was raised, I was raised, I mean, I should say, you know, my mother was involved before years mm-hmm. earlier. My mother, mm-hmm. both when we lived in Philadelphia and in Richmond, my mother was very involved in, in sort of the funding and politics of the schools that we went to. Right. Very cool. Right? I, I, I mean, I yeah. grew up, and, and both of my parents in different ways had been modestly active uh, in, the, in, in the Vietnam War, in the protests against the Vietnam War, sure. as supporters of the civil rights movement from afar, mm-hmm. uh, as um, my father was a huge and passionate supporter all of his life of, uh, of the Cuban Revolution, something which I disagreed with him about in certain respects. Um, uh, but on the other hand, yeah, he saw Cuba in 1961. I did not. So I was sort of inculcated with the idea that, that, that taking action is... is Taking action is possible. In fact, not only possible; it's like the only thing to yeah. do. Um, I, that, that was like deep in, in, and also, you know, that was pretty. That feeling was very prevalent in American society in the 1970s mm-hmm. uh, when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, the anti-war movement, the the civil rights movement; these mm-hmm. things were for adults. These things had happened literally yesterday, and for many, and for some people, they were happening then. Right? The 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 sure. the. The historians view that you know the civil rights movement ended in '68 or whatever. That's not how it felt. That's mm-hmm. that, that, right. that, that nobody told us, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Uh, 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 you know, and I, I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples of this, these kinds of influences. Um, I remember my mother saying 
I remember the way my parents talked about Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, my mother saw Malcolm X speak uh, in, wow. in, in, in New Haven uh, and uh, uh, in a church um, and in, in, in her hometown. Yeah. Um, and she said, <laughs> she said to me when I was when I was young, she said, you know, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and I knew, you know, it wasn't segregated. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew black people. Black people went to school with me. Uh, uh, they, my grandmother worked in the school's uh, administration office mm-hmm. in Hamden, Connecticut. There, there were black people who worked with her. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like one of these like really weird, twisted scenes mm-hmm. on the surface. Right. She said, and everybody got along just fine it, on the surface, mm-hmm. she said. And then she said, I went to hear Malcolm X in his church, and I was the only white person there. And the place was complete. It was a church, remember, and he was he was from the nation of Islam, mm-hmm. right? Right. He was supposed to be anti-Christian. So so she went to this to hear him speak. The church is completely full, right? Like there's a thousand people in the church. And yeah. she's like the only white person there. Mm-hmm. And the church is full of very well-dressed, middle-class, professional African-American women. Mm-hmm. And He's speaking, and she said she was incredibly impressed by him. That it just he was so, uh, so brilliant in sure. in the way he analyzed things and the, his use of rhetoric. And my, yeah. mo- my mother was an English teacher; yeah. she knew something about rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and she said, and she learned though, and the crowd, she said, responded to him like nothing she had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And she learned from that experience, and she was about 23 or 24, mm-hmm. she said mm-hmm. she learned from that experience that African-American people in the United States were really, really angry. Right? That, mm-hmm. right? That, that, At that time period, yeah. <laughs> yes, right. That, <laughs> that like, people were, put, were putting on a, yeah. a, a good face, right? right? Mm-hmm. But, because this was at the time of the Birmingham bombings. Wow. Right. This was, yeah. you know, this was at a time in which people were being literally killed daily in Mississippi yeah. in the civil rights struggle. And nobody was talking about it. And Malcolm X got up in front of that crowd and said, "This is unacceptable, mm-hmm. right? This is this is this is routine, and this is unacceptable." Yeah. Right. And for my and my father would watch Malcolm X on TV. He would appear on TV, and he said years later, he said, "Smartest man I ever saw." Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. So I was given a. Uh, and my father was no slouch in terms of smart people. <laughs> sure. you no, know, he'd been to Harvard and Yale and this kind of stuff. He yeah. said, hands down, Malcolm X was the smartest person he'd ever heard speak on politics. Mm-hmm. Wow. Your question about you know people sense of being able to act. Yes. I was fed a diet of not only can you act, but you must. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and interestingly, my parents and their friends largely, their act, what they did was kind of. How can I put it? Kind of in a minor key, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Like th- their their whole lives weren't activism. Right. They they but they honored and viewed as heroes the people who did. Yeah, sure. Right. My, and and that that I was I was immersed as a young person in that environment, um, and so I think that that plus whatever my innate psychological defects are <laughs> that, 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 that produced what you're talking about. But also, yeah. you know, my you know, life as a young person spanned mm-hmm. a very peculiar moment, sure, which was the moment between the kind of post-60s era of activism, 
right? I mean, there are more strikes in the United States in the 1970s than at any other time in modern American history, other than the other than the period around World War II, mm -hmm. right? right? Right. The 1970s were a period of intense labor activism. Yeah. Strikes were a daily feature of you know you turn on the TV, nightly news. They'd be mm -hmm. like, these people are on strike. These people are on strike. Yeah. The struggles around both the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement continued into the 70s in major ways. Yeah. Um, and there was lots of activism in the 70s on college campuses, lots mm -hmm. of it. It was just the, no it was the norm, Yeah. right? The 80s, when I actually went to college in 82, uh, ver verged into a different kind of world, right? In mm -hmm. which, and you, see, you can see it today in polling, by the way, that, that people who came of age in the 1980s are among the more conservative people in, American, sure. in the American electorate, yeah. right? Um, uh, the... the <laughs> it's ironic, you know, uh, th th these generational effects. Um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. People who came of age later uh, are the core of Bernie Sanders' constituency. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 people who came of age significantly earlier, yeah. right, were influenced by the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, or really old people by the New Deal. Uh, yeah. But that Reagan generation is pretty conservative. And yeah. it, you could feel it at the time. Uh, um, f during that period, I would say, uh, and it went right through the '90s. You could feel mm -hmm. it at the, uh, you know, on college campuses. Now, the exception, of course, was the anti-apartheid movement, which sure. you guys, which you guys mentioned, yeah. and which was, um, you know, for me, uh, uh, another kind of major sort of coming of age thing, yeah. um, and something I'm enormously proud of. I, I. I you know, having played a small role in that uh, and having and seeing the victory. Tell us, please tell us the story of how you got involved. I know there was a lot of movement around divestment. It was global. So I'm just really curious to hear, OK, how did your vision tour turn towards what was happening in South Africa? Well, so, again, you know, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa was a one of the backdrops of public life when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, my memory, when I, I, when I first became aware of what was going on in South Africa, I think was around when I was 11 or 12, uh, uh, when Steve Biko was killed. Uh, and when there was an uprising in Soweto in the townships yeah. outside Johannesburg, uh, connected and, and around the, the, the murder of Steve Biko. Um, and Steve Biko was, um, uh, you know, a Steve Biko was the leader of the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa. His, a lot of his ideas were similar, and I think influenced by Malcolm X mm -hmm. um, uh, Franz Fanon. Um, mm -hmm. um, and but he was a key, <laughs> he was sort of the key figure in in the decolonialization of the spirit, shall we say, uh, in, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And he was murdered by the South African police. Right. Um, uh, and um, so I was aware. So starting there, I was aware of the basic thing, right? That there was apartheid in South Africa. That black people in South Africa weren't allowed to vote. That they were treated, uh, you know, uh, in a subhuman kind of way by by the white minority. Um, and there, and I was also aware, and it shaped my choice of where to go to university. There was a big mm -hmm. student movement um, in at Harvard, in particular, uh, asking the university to asking Harvard to sell its stocks that it held in its inve right. investment yeah. portfolio uh, that in the companies that invested in South Africa. And um, 
there had been big student protests at Harvard, thousands of people, mm -hmm. uh, in 1979, 1980, 1981, when I was in high school uh, trying to decide where to go to university. And it mm -hmm. was part of the backdrop of why I wanted to go to Harvard was because of that type of activism that I knew about. And you know, I felt passionately that, 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 that apartheid was wrong, and I couldn't imagine why anybody would think otherwise or, or why – what I didn't really understand um, uh, was <laughs> – I, I devoted myself to striking a blow against this system, but I didn't really understand how profound a system it was that I was taking aim at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. um, uh, you know, that – both the United States and the United Kingdom had profound economic and security ties with the apartheid government. Yeah. The corporate presence was merely the sort of tip of the iceberg. And it was serious business. It was serious business economically. It was serious business politically and from a kind of security perspective. It was part of the Cold War, right? It was part of a whole web of, you know, really ugly stuff that mm. both the United States and the United Kingdom engaged in during the Cold War. Right. So but but when I got to Harvard, I sort of tried to connect the people who were involved in that movement. By that time, the movement had had kind of ebbed away, had ebbed away. Um, but when South Africans rose up against apartheid with much greater seriousness uh, in the mid 80s, we were we were agitated. We, we had been agitating all along. And right. then all of a sudden it was like the number one story on the national news night after night after night of the police and the army slaughtering people in the streets of South Africa who were protesting for the right, you know, the right to vote, the right to yeah. get a job, you know, this kind of stuff. And um, and we were able to mobilize uh, in that context. We were, able, we were able to organize a mass movement of Harvard students as the same thing was happening in universities all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, and we eventually had, I think, the, big, the single biggest political rally uh, ever in the history of Harvard in 1985. Wow. Uh, we had 5,000 people filled the entire campus. That's uh, amazing. And Jesse Jackson came and spoke. And, um, mm -hmm. and I got to know the, these amazing people uh, who, led, who were leaders in the anti-apartheid the anti -apartheid movement. I, right. I, I talked with Bishop Tutu and Alan Buzak wow. uh, on the phone mm -hmm. because Harvard really mattered. What Harvard, sure. Harvard was an important institution right. in this structure in ways that I didn't really understand. Amplify. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the the, the, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa felt that we were doing something meaningful. Right? Yeah. And uh, in the end, Harvard mostly divested uh, as the sort of the whole thing collapsed, as the whole structure of apartheid politically and economically collapsed. Yeah. Um, a lot of the people we were trying to pressure who ran Harvard were saw themselves as liberals. Um, they had elaborate defenses for why they were doing what they were doing. Sure. Um, but they were totally wrong. And, yeah. and history proved them to be totally wrong. And we were right. Uh, and we knew we were right all along because Alan Buzak and Bishop Tutu and and indirectly Nelson Mandela, who was in prison, mm -hmm. right, but had people speaking for him, uh, all told us, you know, this is helpful. Please do this. Yeah. Right? Sure. And, and it was our ultimate argument at every turn with, the with Harvard was, <laughs> who are you to say that you understand better what to do in South Africa than Nelson Mandela. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. So interesting at every level, but um, I want to fast forward a little bit. So you go to you go to you go to law school and get an MBA. Um, and how did you come to end up working for the AFL CIO? Because you, you've been there for. 
now 20 years, yeah, right? I, yeah, I so retired you... from I retired from the AFL-CIO full-time right, uh, right. Uh, this spring. I, I, I worked for the AFL-CIO in a variety of roles for 25 years. Right. Um, how did you uh, get into that? Uh, but I, that's not how, where my career in the labor movement began. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I went... Um, after I, I went to, uh, to Cambridge, actually, for a year. I studied mm-hmm. history as a graduate student, um, mm-hmm. but was offered a job at the end of that year uh, helping the clerical and technical workers at Harvard organize a union. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew those people. I knew the people doing the organizing. Yeah. I admired them a great deal, and they offered me a job. Um, and I remember sitting in the library in Cambridge doing my research and thinking, you know, I'm not sure this is really as valuable a thing to do as to help these folks organize. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, um, and I, so I, I took that job. And so I, I worked for two years uh, uh, as an organ, as a, a sort of jack of all trades. I mean, I did everything uh, for that union uh, other than organize. The people who did the organizing were former Harvard workers. And, okay. I, was, and I was a student, mm-hmm. I was a former student and there's a big difference. Sure. Uh, um, I learned all about that difference doing that job but I did everything else I did photocopying and research and and press work and, and sure. carrying secret messages and all kinds of stuff <laughs> right I did everything else uh, and I did that for two years mm-hmm. and then I went to work for the uh, amalgamated clothing and textile workers union uh, which uh, like the name says uh, organized people in the clothing and textile industry uh, and in a bunch of related uh, areas some auto parts and other things um, it's uh a union that no longer exists because of the collapse of those industries. It, it, it merged and merged and merged. It does exist. It merged into other unions and sure. then demerged. It, its locals still exist. Um, yeah. They're called Workers United. And I have to say with great pride, they are the Starbucks union. Oh, wow, really? That is cool. Right? Okay. Uh, great. And, uh, but, uh, the other th- but to give you a sense of what, the, what that union was like, um, if you've ever seen the movie Norma Ray. Uh, which is a movie with Sally Field made in the late 70s mm-hmm. about textile organizing in the South. Oh, wow. Um, it's that union. Uh, Interesting. And uh, I, I worked for them for three years, and I did uh, I did organizing. I did mostly research and work in the capital markets. Um, oh. uh, and we did a lot of very heavy-duty anti-apartheid work, actually. Wow. Uh, that union was very... Uh, that union was very progressive and really gave scope to us to do all kinds of good things uh, in the course of uh, representing our members. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we helped force a whole bunch of banks to cut ties with South Africa at a critical point. And we, uh, we, did, some, we did some work trying to protect the Amazon. I mean, we did a lot of things Very that cool. uh, were, were uh, sort of broad, sort of broad uh, social advocacy. But mm-hmm. mostly what we did was organize industrial workers uh and the working poor uh and um and when i say that i that later experiences in my life reinforced what i learned in the dining hall at harvard what i'm mostly talking about is my experiences doing uh, organizing in the clothing and textile industry mm-hmm. in the south um uh, it, it's um they were uh, there wasn't time to to describe what that was like, um, yeah. but it was a profound thing. Um, I'll just say one thing. Yeah, yeah I've, I've never seen a human being more tired than wow. than the workers who would come off the twelve-hour shifts in a textile mill. Yeah, um, people were so tired they couldn't they couldn't speak. They couldn't mm-hmm. they couldn't put sentences together. Uh, it, it um, I, I, and the courage of the people who fought back against that 
in yeah. these small towns in the Carolinas. I, you know, it's, um, you know, 30 years later, I can, I can't even, right. I can't even begin to describe it. Um, the, um, uh, so, I, so anyway, I, I worked in the labor movement for five years, and at the end of that, I thought that I might, I could use some actual training. Yeah. <laughs> that I was, I was pretending to be a lawyer and pretend. I mean, not yeah. literally. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't practicing without a license. But I was, was I, right. But I was, uh, you know, I was, I was doing. Sure. I, I, I was looking at legal issues. I was yeah. doing financial analysis, and and I didn't really. I, I was making it up. I mean, I was making mm. it up as I went along, and, and I needed like the real training. Yeah. And so I went, I got an MBA and a law degree at Harvard. Right. Uh, I went back to the same place. It was kind of, you know, <laughs> well, you know, and uh, I, I got those degrees. And then uh, uh, the leadership of the AFL-CIO, the American Labor Movement, had changed while I was in school. And uh, um, people really devoted to organizing and to being connected to the larger uh, a larger uh, socially progressive uh, uh, politics uh, had come to power. Mm-hmm. Um, John Sweeney, uh, who was the president of SEIU, who uh, became a dear friend and mentor to me, uh, uh, Richard Trumpka, who had been the president of the Coal Miners Union, had helped lead the effort to align the labor movement with the anti-apartheid movement in, in the yeah. 1980s. He led strikes of, he led sympathy strikes of white coal miners in the South in support of strikes by African, by black coal miners in South Africa. Very interesting. Um, and he got arrested at the South African embassy. Rich, uh, Rich was really my close friend. Uh, John Sweeney was my mentor. He was uh, another generation uh, uh, than me. Uh, Rich was uh, both these men died in the last two years. John Sweeney oh. died of COVID, and, and, and Rich had a heart attack um, oh. at the peak of his at the peak of what Rich was trying to do for working people. He had a heart attack a year ago oh. and died. Um, but uh, but these guys uh, these guys had won control of the AFL CIO in, in a in a sort of pitched internal battle, and I went to work uh, for them uh, right. uh, in 1997, coming out of law school. Um, uh, I just I mean it was I it was like a no-brainer it was a huge I, I, all the people that I knew in the labor movement had been trying to get the AFL-CIO to be more of a forward more a more of a be less of a business unionist organization and more mm-hmm. of a social movement and people totally committed to that task had 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 won had won power through an election and uh like where else was I going to go I mean it, you know it was it was the great it was the great opportunity. It was the opportunity of a lifetime, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and there I stayed. I mean, I I I found, as I used to say, people people would ask me, "Well, why don't you do something else?" And I was like, "Well, you, you got something more. <laughs> do you have something better? You have something more relevant?" Or or what I used mm-hmm. to say is, I, "I know I know organizations that are more politically pure, but they have no power. Yeah, and I know organ right. and I know organizations that are more." powerful but but you don't want to do what they do uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh and but most importantly and i should it's that's a nice solid it's a nice little cylindrism but really the vast honor of being able to represent you know the working people of the united states uh you know to be and to do so in a way that is legitimate meaning that that the flcio has depending on how you count between 
at various times between 12 and 15 million people. Mm -hmm. They elect the leaders of the unions that make up the AFL-CIO. The delegates elect the president, right? It's, it's the president hires me and tells me what to do, right? It's legitimate. It's not, it's not me think, making up what working people might want, mm -hmm. right? It's being the, the agent of the elected leaders of, the American, of American working people. You walk into a room, right, a uh, meeting room. There's, no, there's nothing better you can say. There's no better card to hand across the table sure. than, 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 than that one. The great privilege and honor of being able to do that remains with me. I mean, I, I still do it as an outside advisor, but, right. but um, uh, you know, yeah, not, nothing better. Right. I, I have a couple of questions about this. So I'm 29. So in my lifetime, and then I guess in the decade or two before, um, unions have basically been, you know, decimated in the U.S., right? And you've talked about this a lot. So, and, you know, so it's funny on a personal level, I never imagined like joining a union. It just never seemed like a possibility for me. I have a few friends who are in unions, like maybe a teacher's union, a couple friends in Hollywood because I'm from LA, but that, you know, um, and, you know, it kind of, one thing I heard you talk about, or I read something that you wrote possibly um, about um, how the labor, the the structure, I guess you could call it the operating model or the you know business model, maybe isn't the right word, for what unions actually are and how they work has cha has changed in the past. It's not right. it's not been uh, historically static, you know. And um, as I said, it wasn't until college when I read about it that I realized like, oh, you know, we have the unions to thank for, you know, the 40 hour work week and, you know, weekends and all of that. Um, at the same time now, you know, such a, you know, a smaller and smaller percentage of people are in unions. And also it seems that there's, um, there's just a lot of kind of institutional obstacles in the, in the way of the labor movement that haven't seemed to go away, even with more progressive kind of politi uh, political administrations. So I'm just curious, like, do you think that, how, how have you seen it change in your time working for the AFL-CIO? And um, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about, about the historical aspect and then, you know, how do you, how do you think, do you think that unions should kind of change form again going forward and, and how? Well, that's a, it's a sizable question. Sorry, sorry that's too <laughs> no, many no, questions. No, 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 no. I mean, it's a very important one. Um, and uh, let me just first say, Justin, that you're, you're right about uh, your memory of what you read by me is right. I, I've I've made a point on a number of occasions uh, mm -hmm. uh, of writing that people need to understand that the word union encompasses a lot of things. Yes. Right. Um, and they are sort of layered historically, uh, meaning that that. Um, uh, today, there are unions whose origins are in really different kinds of organizations. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, some unions have their origins in uh, in medieval guilds and like craft guilds. Some unions have their origins in. Uh, uh, I make a point of saying this: some unions have their origins in anti-slavery conspiracies. There are unions in the American mm -hmm. South and and in the Caribbean and so forth. That if you look like, where did this come from? How did these people learn to act collectively? Well, they did it by resisting slavery, uh, you know, and then their children and grandchildren and great, I mean, a, a culture of organization and resistance was passed on that became a union local. Uh, that the, um, 
there are unions that are the product of mass movements uh, um, in industrial settings, so like the United Auto Workers, for example, uh, it, it's uh, in the United States, um, or the the Fiat Workers Union in Italy. They are the product. They're the product of some historical uprising uh, against the way people were were abused in 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 in, uh, in uh, mass production uh, in in the twentieth century. Uh, there are public sector worker unions that are have their origins in civil service uh, associations, very highly professionalized. There are others that have their origins again in in, in mass social movements. Um, right. uh, you know the the, the 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 teachers unions in major American cities all had to strike illegally to get the, and 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 public sector unionism in the United States is very closely tied to the civil rights movement, um, uh, particularly in you know in 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 big cities. Uh, as a product of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King was killed uh, on a on a public sector garbage strike picket picket line. Essentially, his right. last speech is about his last speech is a speech to sanitation workers and their families and allies about how we are going to go on an illegal picket line, right? And like that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. That, right. that, you know, uh, uh, we in the labor movement often say, you know, Martin Luther King died on a, on a picket line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what we often don't, we don't say often enough, is that his last speech was an exhortation to 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 go on a, uh, a, a, a striker's march that was illegal, right? right? Mm-hmm. To, that his was a justification for violating a, a court injunction. Um, so so unions are a lot of things. And, and I think that right now, well, what, whatever I say, it doesn't matter. Uh, in reality, working people uh, in the developed world right now are reinventing what unions are. Right. Uh, the, the unions that are being created of, you mentioned Hollywood, unions that are being created of people doing digital content creation, mm-hmm. uh, unions of you know, the Amazon workers or, yeah. who are organizing in Alabama and in, in Staten Island. I mentioned Starbucks, I think. That may be in some ways the most interesting uh, 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 thing in the United States. These unions don't function the same way as the auto workers union did in 1940. Uh, Mm -hmm. They are the product of, unions are the product of the lived experience at work of the people who form them. Uh, And and, and so I think that's going on all around us. Um, I think it's an open question whether the legacy institutions of the labor movement are able to integrate with all of this new organizing in an effective way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the great challenge the labor movement faces, is how to merge working people's existing institutions with the institutions and ways of organizing that are in the making among young workers. I think that's the great challenge. We shouldn't expect Amazon workers to necessarily want to have the same kind of organization that auto workers had right any more than we would ex- have expected auto workers to have the same kind of organization that locomotive engineers had mm-hmm. right sure. or 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 that carpenters had the genius of the labor movement through time is its ability to to grow to encompass all the lived experiences of working people um, I think though that there are certain things that are fixed that are not going to change uh, uh, and that when you start hearing people say that should change, you're hearing people saying something that's not helpful, mm. right? So, mm. um, so I think that the fundamentals, the fundamentals of workers organizing collectively in the workplace to bargain collectively with their employers, right? To have to, to, and to sit independently of their employer, right? And to have that bargaining have legal form, 
mm-hmm. right? So that so that it can't be altered unilaterally by the employer. I think those things are. If you look at all the things that you call a union, they all do that in one way or another. Right. There's some. There's greater or lesser in government involvement in sure. different situations and so forth. But those things are those things. Collective you know, organization in the workplace to bargain collectively with the employer. That is the core thing that all these different kinds of organizational forms have, and it's as old as it's as old as the Bible, right? If you if you go back and listen and read carefully in Exodus about you know uh, Moses sitting down with Pharaoh, right? You will read an account of <laughs> a collectively organized group of workers having a negotiating session with their employer. <laughs> That's, a, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I didn't. I did not know that. I need to go back and. It's, I need it's to intense. Read biblical history, in addition to my labor it's, history. It's an. It's an intense thing. If you had any experience with this kind of thing, and you read Exodus, you're like, oh, <laughs> I know what they're talking about. Uh, it, it's. It's. Yeah, it's wild. It um, makes sense. And, the and, common a commonality of just being able to yeah join together. And, and by the way, every thoughtful labor leader that I know of understands what I just said. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying anything that's like, uh, I'm not saying anything that is like heretical in the world of labor. Right. Right. Everybody understands and, and, and that, that the labor movement has to be open to, to new generations of workers, their experience, the kinds of organizations they want to build. The, the, um, something I think it's really important to be said here though, um, is that after 40 years of neoliberalism and wage suppression, Mm. in the more neoliberal developed economies, meaning the United States most of all, but the United Kingdom number two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, after 40 years of that, uh, unions have never been more popular. Right. So, so, so in the United States right now, we have 10%, 10% of the workforce, 6.6% of the private sector workforce right. is actually in a union. But 68% of the American public support unions and would like to be in one. Yeah. Wow, that's right? amazing. Now, now, something as as uh, as uh, as they say in Hollywood, something's got to give, <laughs> right? Yeah. We have legal structures. This this is not the labor movement's problem. We have legal right. structures that effectively prevent workers from being in unions when they want to, and and, and allow employers to refuse to bargain collectively and to fire people who try to try to organize. And until and and we need to fix that, right? That, uh, that that's why there's this giant gap between actual union membership, and 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 union support. And I believe, although I've not seen polls, I believe something similar is happening in the United Kingdom. You know, mm. uh, I, I think a lot of people, like the a lot of people, both in the press and in the Tory Party, thought that Mick Lynch and the trans and the and the RMT were going to be unpopular. Oh, right? when they, that guy's well, such a badass, though. He's just on TV, just shutting down every single, you know, news presenter that was like, "Are you going to violently stop people from going to work?" And there, you know, he was just so uh, on the ball. Yeah. Right. Well, in a country of low wage workers yeah. who have had to, who have had, who have been powerless for decades, right? It turns out that the, that people who stand up for themselves are popular. It's kind of it's kind of funny because it's like you said something like sixty eight percent would want to be in a union. It's like I bet you know that remaining percent that says they don't. It's maybe they don't want to be in a union. But if you said you know do you want you know uh, better wages, better benefits, like all the things that unions actually fight for, those are just kind of like universal well, things in, for workers, right? Well, well, here's an interesting thing. Um, 
in my experience, union organizing, union elections in the United States are hard fought and often very close. Mm -hmm. um, the, the union election at Harvard that I was involved in organizing was an election of 3,600 workers. Mm. It was decided by three votes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Under U.S. labor law, nobody has to join a union. Um, right. Uh, you, 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 and some, in some situations, workers who are represented by unions have to pay a fee to the union because the union is obligated to represent them, right? But nobody has to join. Right? Joining is voluntary. Mm -hmm. It's almost always true that after the election, when the union wins, everybody joins. Even the people that voted against it, right? right. Yeah. Now, why is that? It's because the election is not an election about do you like unions or not like unions? Do you want to, do you want do you want better wages and working conditions? Do you not want better working yeah. conditions? The election is about power. Yes. It's about people's perception of whether they have the power to stand up to their employer or not. And mm -hmm. they and it's a choice between hope and fear. Mm -hmm. Right? It, it's and when you win, people realize, "Oh, this is possible. This is doable." So everybody everybody joins. Right, it's it, the 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 the. This is part of why. This is sort of core to why the labor movement is so important if you mm -hmm. want a decent society, mm -hmm. and why, um, and why, in my opinion, anti-union campaigns, the way the the way they're run by employers and the law firms they hire, they're in a, they're a kind of proto-fascism, right? They're they're about crushing people. Right in the way that uh, George Orwell, George Orwell described mm -hmm. uh, the ambitions of the state in 1984, they were about f making people feel that they are powerless and hopeless and nothing can be done. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. that is the objective of the anti-union campaign, and and, uh, and I've seen it play out over and over again. When you said, you know. The other 32% is 68% of pro-union. The other 32% would be if they could be or something. In my experience, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm. Right. Because the issues here are hope and fear. Not I would prefer to be poor, right? But no. <laughs> but I'm afraid that if I do anything, I'm afraid if I do anything, it will get worse. Yeah. Right? That's, that's the, powerful. That That's what is, you know. That's I'm so inspired to hear that's, that. That's really powerful. It's really interesting because you and I we have very different backgrounds. So yeah. my father, he's a member of AFSME. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, all my life, very active, going marching on the Capitol, and so I've always been a part of unions where I can be. And um, it's, do you think unions are they're making a resurgence now? It seems like. And do you see that continuing, or particularly in the U.S. but also the U.K.? So. I'm very optimistic about the future of the labor movement. Um, and let me just say, by the way, AFSCME uh, uh, is, the, the union your father was, is, is uh, active in. That's the union that Martin Luther King died for. Wow. That, that, that is, Martin Luther King was on an AFSCME picket line uh, when he was killed. Uh, and AFSCME is an organization with a history of being kind of the embodying the energy and hopes of the civil rights movement. It is, um, it, it, it's an organization of incredible, that's had an incredible positive impact on America. Um, and, and, and more people should know that. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah.
you are now visiting professor at IPP for what the next few months or how long is this going to well, be? Well, you know, visiting professorships are an interesting thing at say, IPP. It's a, little, it's a little nebulous. So how did you <laughs> how did you end up here? Did did Mariana Mazzucato recruit you, or how did you manage to to well, come to? I've here? known I've known Mariana for. Uh, a while, I think back to 2012 or 20, 2012. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, uh, and she and I share a set of common intellectual interests uh, sure. and a common sort of way of seeing the world. I've, um, uh, when she did, uh, her, uh, for those listening, Mariana is the uh, director of the IIPP. The, um, yeah. And, and uh, uh, when I first met Mariana, she was just completing her work on the ways in which the public sector had supported uh, the creation of the technologies behind the iPhone. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed by that. I, I thought that was really an extraordinary piece of research with extraordinary implications. Sure. Um, and so she and I have, have sort of talked back and forth about a wide range of things uh, over the years. And um, in, in 2019, I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical from the AFL-CIO, and I wanted to be uh, in the United Kingdom with uh, my partner, Gian Wara, whom I mentioned earlier, who uh -huh. was the... Uh, who was the uh, MP for Newcastle Central. Uh, and, uh, and so Mariana said, well, why don't you come, uh, why don't you come uh, spend some time uh, here at the Institute? And, and I had a project in mind, which the Ford Foundation was kind enough to fund, about labor and climate change, right. um, which uh, ended up being the lectures that I gave uh, this term. We'll post the link in the right. <laughs> episode. Yeah. Um, uh, and so that's kind of, and, and so I came as a visiting professor at that time, and 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 uh, IIPP is sort of like the Hotel California, right? You can you, <laughs> <laughs> check out anytime you like, but you, you, never you can never leave. <laughs> uh, meaning that the visiting professorship title, uh, you're always visiting. <laughs> and when I retired, uh, there was an opportunity then to. Uh, dig uh, in a little more. To, yeah, to dig in a little, to come back and 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 give some lectures and kind of be around. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, you know, it's it, it's a term by term thing. I, I'm sure. I'm um, thinking about a couple of different things that I'd like to do uh, in the fall. Um, one, uh, uh, one having to do with uh, the industrial history of, of the United Kingdom. Cool. Uh, I have a see. I have a book manuscript that uh, sort of got stalled. Got 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 stalled by COVID. It, sure. <laughs> I gave it to the Ford Foundation the day the United States locked down. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, uh, which then, you know, I mean, it, I, it was impossible to think about anything like that, you know, for, yeah. for years after that. But, because uh, then there was the Trump election. I mean, it was really, the well, I should say the Biden election. Uh, yes. But, but, um, but uh, uh, so I, I have this rather lengthy uh, essay about the relationship between deindustrial between decolonialization, deindustrialization, and Brexit yep. in, in, wow. in in the UK. That sounds very interesting. Well, well perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> well, but if, if you think it's interesting, maybe uh, maybe Marianne and Reiner will as well. Uh, the uh, um, so I'm, that's one project, and then the other cool. project I have in mind is uh, it, it has to do with neoliberalism and with the uh, and with understanding what neoliberalism <laughs> is and was and 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 what it's um, what its political consequences were. You know, that's that's one of those words, neoliberalism, that means a lot of different things to different people. What is it? What do you kind of, how do you conceptualize oh, it? Oh, I, I think it's very, something very, very specific, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is the set of, of policy ideas uh, that uh, were associated initially with Reagan and Thatcher and then sort of metastasized into something that became 
almost universal in the 1990s. Um, and it's called neoliberalism because it's the revival of economic and social theories uh, from the early 19th century that were that were originally called the original meaning of the term liberalism was the the economics and politics of the uh, uh, of essentially factory owners in um, in early 19th century Europe and America, right? Uh, uh, neo uh, cl uh, classical economics, right? The laissez-faire economics mm -hmm. um, and kind of a sort of social openness. Right, the combination of laissez-faire economics with a kind of social openness. Now, Thatcher and Reagan weren't particularly socially open, but their politics and economics kind of morphed into uh, this attempt to to have um, market fundamentalism, right? Unregulated markets to have unregulated markets be a common belief across all political all the entire political spectrum. Mm -hmm. So you could be, in American terms, a quote liberal, meaning like that you would be anti-racist and uh, pro-choice and uh, uh, pro-immigrant, and you would have uh, this belief in unregulated markets. Or you could be a right-winger, meaning that you you would be mm -hmm. you know you would believe in the authority of the church and the and uh, and low taxes and and uh, mm -hmm. um, and you would be skeptical or and you'd be you know sort of crypto racist and whatever. I mean, there could be a hard right winger, <laughs> yeah. and you would have the same economic ideas mm -hmm. that the you know more it, or less. It's treated as that, just common sense, right? Right. I mean, to use Gramsci's term, hegemonic. Yes. Exactly. Right. Now, that's neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, uh, as its predecessor, liberalism, and I don't mean, again, I, say, yeah, yeah. I, I do not mean American liberalism. <laughs> no, we got you. We got you. <laughs> right? But laissez-faire economics, as it was practiced in the 19th and early 20th century, and neoliberalism basically had the same outcomes, right? Depression, war, and fascism. Mm -hmm. And... If you doubt that, pick up today's newspaper, mm -hmm. so to speak, right, and look where we are, right, right, and 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 the 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 idea that I have really is to examine why it is what is marketed as kind of an ideology of freedom is actually an ideology of coercion mm -hmm. and and unaccountable power, uh, and uh, <laughs> when I think of what I mean by unaccountable power is uh, is Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. That's unaccountable power. Mm -hmm. Sure, absolutely. That's that's a good definition, an interesting reflection on it, and you know that kind of underlies many of the topics that we were we've been talking about today, and that you talked about in your lectures. Um, you know, there was one question in particular, and obviously I'm going to post the links and encourage everyone to to listen to your climate change and innovation lectures. Um, I think you just did an amazing job untangling this web of incentives and interrelationships between the labor movement and the environmental movement, right? And and mainly focusing on the U US and Europe. Um, and, you know, one lecture was a comparison mainly between France and Germany. Um, another was between the Obama and Biden administration. There's a lot there to dig into. Um, and, you know, 
uh, <laughs> we all, I think everyone who listens to this podcast will be very familiar with the IPCC's projections and all of the, you know, the urgency of, of, of what we need to, to do, right? Um, there are several threads that, that we could go down on this, but the one thing that I really wanted to ask you about is um, you, you say at one point that um, climate change is at its core an engineering challenge on a very large scale, right? Just the idea that in order to reduce uh, our, our carbon emissions, we need huge amounts of technol technological innovation and, and resources towards uh, the changing the energy system. But I also think it, one question that I like to ask all of our guests on the podcast is one of IPP's catchphrases is innovation is political, right? So how do you reconcile those two? Or what does innovation as political mean to you? And, and how do you kind of think about that, it being an engineering challenge versus a political or economic or social challenge? Well, uh, it's a great, it's a wonderful question. It sort of gets right to the heart of what I was trying to do. And also, you know, I was talking about my uh, history at IIPP. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I, I didn't say this. I just throw this in here. I just love being at IIPP. And, I, and the reason <laughs> I love being here, I mean, I'm very, uh, very close friends with Mariana and with uh, yeah. Reiner and other faculty but and Kate. But the real reason I love being here is because I love being with the students. <laughs> um, I, I, I find the, the, the global, I mean, just these extraordinary uh, people who come here to learn. You happen to get um, two Americans, but yeah, it yeah, is very no, well, I mean, you guys are. <laughs> but last, but last night I was uh, with a group of students who were from Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, Amazing. right? Uh, uh, and, and who were so engaged in their own societies and in their interaction with the uh, with the world. I learned I learned so much by being here from the students uh, that uh, uh, I, I just I just find it really really uh, rewarding. Um, uh, so all right. But some people listening to this podcast might say, well, what in the world does any of this have to do with innovation? <laughs> and and, and right. the answer is that I think all of us here at IAPP kind of have a common belief that um, innovation is, uh, is, is an intensely political process, that innovation, that the, the kind of you know, eureka moment, the apple falling on Newton's head or whatever, the eureka moment is just one piece of what innovation really is. And that the, uh, I mean, Mariana talks a lot about market shaping, uh, sure. which I think is an extraordinarily important concept, right? Markets are not from God. They, they, are, they are created, shaped, regulated uh, uh, by both by states and by uh, Institutions of various kinds. So, so, it, so, in every sense, innovation is political. But secondly, um, the key question with innovation, the, the key question about innovation, is is um, is uh, is deployment. Is, is 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 you know, all kinds of people have had great ideas that were never deployed effectively. Uh, mm. you know, one thing that I mentioned in my manuscript is. Um, uh, in, in the later Roman Empire, there were people who invented steam engines, mm -hmm. uh, but nobody thought it was particularly interesting or important. Uh, mm. uh, they saw them as toys, mm. right? In, in a in a slave society, labor-saving devices were not so important to the people mm -hmm. who counted, right? Who controlled resources. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the best way to understand it. It's hard to it's hard to understand this. It's hard to understand how 
you know, uh, how it was that these things weren't deployed. Mm -hmm. All right. Climate change um, is the point that I made in my talks. Climate change is at its root, at its core, an engineering problem. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely true. If we want to prevent a catastrophe, and, and I think I'm not sure that everybody who's listening to this knows exactly what I what the IPCC, the United Nations, is mm -hmm. actually saying, right? Because um, they're kind of coy about it in mm -hmm. their reports. But what they are saying is we are on track to three degrees centigrade global warming within the lifetime of people who are who are listening to this to this podcast. Mm -hmm. Three degrees, three degrees is catastrophe, mm -hmm. unmanageable. Three degrees is unmanageable rapid climate changes which we, whose full consequences we cannot predict but which the most likely outcomes are, 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 so, are economic and social uh, and, and ecological change that we can't manage. Mm -hmm. right? that, that, that when, where, there, where there are no – there is no mitigation. Right? The, 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 um, now, that can be prevented. Right? It's not. We're not doomed. They, that can be prevented, but only through massive engineering over the next fifteen years. Mm. Right. So, at, at one level, at the science level, it is an engineering problem. But engineering is the product of politics. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Or or political economy. Yes. Engineering is the product of political economy. Yes. Um, and the starting point of my initial lecture is that okay. We have a genuine emergency. It can only be solved by very large-scale engineering, which means very large-scale investment. It is crystal clear that is not going to happen just by sort of hoping that the markets do it, mm. by the you know financial markets, corporations, internal investment programs. We are just never – we're not going to get the speed and scale. And we've been pretending that we will for 30 years since, uh, it, it, you know, since the late 80s when climate change was – sort of definitively diagnosed. Right. We've been pretending that that these that neoliberal solutions will work. They are not working and we are running out of time. Yeah. We need a more like we need more like a wartime approach, meaning we throw resources at this problem uh, essentially directed by the state. The, the the that's what we do. That's what every society does in a genuine emergency. Yeah. That's what we did in COVID. That's that's what we do in wartime, right? And we need to do that now. And the problem is, how do you get the political will to do that, right? And that's why uh, labor and labor is the indispensable actor here. Working people's support for that kind of mobilization is essential. Without it, it won't happen. And we just we just careen into three degrees and whatever that means, right? Yes. And so the 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 whole point of my lectures is. Engineering means investment, means politics, means organizing political support. And, in, and in, in all the world's major economies where this is necessary, that means getting working people's support. And that means, that means that governments have to engage with working people, have to engage with their unions and their political parties, and have to craft an approach to climate change and to climate-related innovation and engineering and so forth that creates good jobs and a better future. The jobs, the jobs that are created through, through fighting climate change have got to be better jobs, not, not more jobs, not comparable jobs, better jobs than the jobs that previously existed in the carbon, in the carbon fuel sector. And in order to do that, in order to make that happen, we have to break the power of people like Elon Musk because those people are, are trying 
to make money by having the, the jobs of the future be worse than the jobs of the past. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to do is set off a global climate catastrophe. That, that, that is, that's why when, you know, a lot of people made fun of the movie Don't Look Up. Yeah. I, I, I was like, this isn't, this isn't a satire. This is absolutely reality. Right. I mean, obviously the details are not reality, but no, the no. basic dynamic of that movie is reality. Yeah. It, it is the choice we face. It's between indulging, indulging psychotic billionaires and their desire to make money off of our fear and actually making the investments we need to make and getting the politics lined up and, get, and, and making the economic future of working people in the context of fighting climate change better than our past. Those are the choices. And if we go with the billionaires, we're going to get three degrees of warming. That yeah. and, and everything that has happened in climate policy since 1990 shows that that's true. Right. I like that you make explicit the need around, in terms of, you know, mission-oriented climate change policy, mm -hmm. the need for movement in terms of making that happen. And so you talk about labor being really, in, really, really integral to that mm -hmm. how what can begin to i guess amplify these movements grow these movements like what do you see as some of the mechanisms by which we can really make this thing happen more so uh well you know boy that's that is a that is a good question um i see i think about the most one of the most effective things that could be done in support of action on climate change. And I'm, I'm not saying I know how to do it, but one of the most effective things that could be done would be effective labor law reform that gave workers greater voice uh, in countries, in the, in the countries that have to make these decisions. Combined with political will from uh, elected officials and others, that climate change has got to be the top, the, the top item. Right. We need the kind, you know, in, in both the first and the second world wars, every society on all sides, but in particular, with particular effect, the democracies um, negotiated essentially labor peace agreements and or and right to organize agreements with the labor movements in their countries. Right. It was if you go back and look at the history of workers rights in both the United Kingdom and the United States, the key things that happened that enabled the labor movement to grow and and be and 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 be a permanent feature of the, of these societies were the were the social compacts reached in the first and second world wars in the united kingdom it was the first world war that was decisive in the united states it was the second world war but there were agreements of this kind in both countries in both wars the the it was understood by everybody uh, it was understood by every political leader that having the full support of industrial workers for wartime mobilization was essential and that whatever would have to be done to get that full support had to be done. Mm -hmm. Climate change is the same problem, except the stakes are actually higher. Right. The stakes are higher. And what we need right now is for political leaders who understand what the stakes are to be sitting with the representatives of working people and figuring out what does a common agenda look like for fighting climate change that helps working people, right? And this has been made, the, the effect of neoliberalism on the world's economy and on, in particular, on labor 
uh, has made the fight against climate change really, really hard because working people have zero confidence, right, that, yeah. that, that they're going to be treated well in this because of how badly they've been treated by their governments and yes. by their employers over the last 40 years. I'll tell you, the person who really understands this, although sometimes he's a little hard to, it's a little hard to understand what he's saying, mm -hmm. the person who totally gets this uh, and speaks very powerfully about it is Pope Francis, mm -hmm. um, who has said over and over again in papal encyclicals that you can't fight climate change without dealing with the dehumanization that mm -hmm. uh, financialized capitalism has created. Right. Right. Um, I, I think he's, I, I, you know, in certain respects, I am, <laughs> I'm plagiarizing from him <laughs> in a very different idiom. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, uh, but, but this, this challenge, this, this challenge of undoing the neoliberal labor dynamic in order to be able to organize a politics, the politics necessary to fight climate change, is the fundamental challenge facing the world. And, and I would say one more thing about it for this audience, which I do talk about in the lecture a fair yeah. amount. Way too much time is spent in climate discourse about things that are irrelevant mm -hmm. and that are divisive. They're divisive and irrelevant. So, one and, and I think from the IIPP perspective, one of the most important things to understand it is not relevant is the question of what's going to happen in the world's poorest countries in terms of, of carbon emissions. Mm. Why is that irrelevant? Because... They're not the problem, right? In order to be able to get away from the three degrees, the, 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 what needs to happen is the United States, uh, North America, the United mm -hmm. States, Mexico, Canada, North America, Europe, and, uh, and East Asia, China, mm -hmm. Japan, Korea, et cetera, but most of all China. These three areas have to cut their emissions radically, 30 to 40% by the late 2030s. That's what has to happen. They are so dominant. Those three areas are so dominant in terms of global emissions that if, meanwhile, the global poor increase their emissions, it's irrelevant, mm -hmm. right? So we need to help. The developed world does need to help the developing world deal with the consequences of climate change, right? right. right? We and, and to help them develop in as low carbon a way possible. Mm -hmm. But if they just went and did whatever they wanted to do in terms of carbon emissions, it's almost impossible for them to uh, for them to do any further meaningful damage. It's it's us. It's it's yes. us. It's we who have to act. And by us, I mean uh, North America, Europe, China, Japan. Mm -hmm. Right. That's where the fight is. And all this kind of hair, you know, hand wringing and hair pulling about about like what about you know what about other places and will <laughs> they develop and all this? Yeah. It's. In the in terms of the immediate emergency, it's not actually relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and some other things that people spend a lot of time tearing their hair about are not relevant. Air travel, for starters. Interesting. Tell us uh, about that. Well, air travel is about 3% of global emissions. Re remember what I just said. We need a 40% cut. Right? Yeah. And when you tell, and a 40% cut is doable by changing the engineering of our power system, our built environment, and our uh, and our and our transport systems, we do not have to tell the great British public that they don't that they can't go to Spain anymore, mm -hmm. right? Telling people that is right. is destructive, right? And it's and it's not true, yeah. Right? What we need to get the buy-in for is the is the heavy engineering that deals with the real emissions.
Mm. And we've got to stop all this kind of moral hand-wringing and get the job done. Mm -hmm. Man, that is um, a lot to consider and, and digest, and I really appreciate that summary of it. So the last thing on the on the climate lectures is you made a comment in the third lecture that kind of uh, gave me chills a little bit, which is you were talking about how um, there's this strange irony that's happened, and this is in the example of the U.S., where um, actually the oil and gas industry are in some ways highly unionized, but more important, maybe more importantly, like they're those those are really high-paying jobs with good yes. benefits, and <laughs> the unions in those industries really fight for their people, and this has created a strange dynamic where then it's pitting the labor movement against the environmental movement in a very unproductive way. And, and you, you say, you know, very straightforwardly, you can't blame anyone for, for, you know, wanting more pipelines because those are good jobs, you know, if they're in that industry. And you made a comment that said the oil and gas industry understands political economy, even if the Democratic Party does not, <laughs> because the right has managed to weaponize this, right? right? And this is something that as an American who's been frustrated with the Democratic Party for a very long time, it really hit close to home. And I just wonder if you have any insight, especially because you, you have worked with you know the Democrats in Congress and other people, like how, you have any insight on how we might get them to understand... Um, like, cause you know, it's just not going to cut it to say, we're going to teach 55 year old coal miners how to code, you know, that whole thing. I'll, I'll I will give credit to Biden that he hasn't been as yeah, strongly on that as that was no. a couple years ago, but still like, you know, how do you, how do you kind of change this within, within the democratic party? I, I suppose, you know, because <laughs> let's just set the Republicans aside. <laughs> That's a different battle. All right. Well, I'm going to say something extraordinarily cynical about this. Yeah. Um, this is a question of the attitudes of the environmental funders. Mm. Mm. All right. The, the, the Democratic Party, the environmental movement is a substantial part of the Democratic Party. Yes. The, the labor movement is also a substantial part, in fact, a larger part. But the labor movement is very big and, and includes people from all different, of all, all different industries and a wide range of opinions about a lot of things and so on and so forth, right? The, the part of the labor movement that matters in these discussions is the part of the labor movement that actually does the work, right? That does the work related to energy, transportation, and manufacturing, right? And that uh, part of the labor movement uh, drives the train in terms of the labor movement's overall posture on energy and climate policy, mm -hmm. and for good reason, yeah. Right, the healthcare workers drive the labor movement's view of healthcare. Yeah. Right, you know, right. Uh, auto workers drive the view. Of, you know, you know, I mean, you know, we we that's what solidarity means. The environmental movement is very heavily shaped by what its funders want and their view of the world, hmm. um, and uh, those funders. Uh, I mean, some of the some of the, some of I. I want to be clear, some of the environmental movement's funding is essentially crowdsourced, uh, but sure. a lot of it comes from wealthy individuals um, and foundations, and people write very large checks. Um, uh, you know, an example of that was, you know, Mike Bloomberg's historic relationship with the Sierra Club, I mean, historic, I don't mean like for 50 years, but, you know, during- <laughs> big, big money. <laughs> right, but during the last 10 years, uh, Mike Bloomberg has given a lot of money to the Sierra Club, uh, um, way more than- you know, than typically they're able to crowdsource. Sure. 
Um, so it really is a question of what the what the in terms of getting the Democratic Party sort of properly positioned. Um, I mean, uh, you know, you might. I mean, Joe Biden has done wonders. I mean, frankly, Joe Biden's approach, and this is part of my lectures, Joe Biden's approach to these issues, getting the blue-collar labor movement in the room, um, making sure that labor standards apply to public investments in energy, um, right. uh, the, the, uh, and being tough about this uh, has really uh, moved things, I, I think, really significantly in a positive direction. When you think about that approach, you know, the way... Joe Biden's effort to, to pass, his successful effort to pass infrastructure, his infrastructure bill, and the continuing effort to pass uh, what was originally called Build Back Better is now, now has some other name, uh, which has $600 billion of climate-related uh, energy uh, provisions in it. Um, that effort uh, and him unifying the labor movement and the environmental movement behind that effort has created a, a really different dynamic than we saw during the Obama administration with like the Keystone Pipeline fight and these uh, these other fights that were extraordinarily divisive, um, and that um, uh, led um, a, a lot of people in, in the energy related labor movement to think that that they were that the environmental movement didn't get didn't care about them and their families and their jobs i yeah. mean i mean that whole thing was really poisonous and what biden is doing right now is not only will actually do the heavy engineering we need to do to to solve to to fight climate change and meet paris targets but unifies people mm -hmm. um, and we see it having benefits in all kinds of places i mean the the, the us construction labor movement just did a uh, uh, a project labor agreement covering all the labor involved uh, in a vast offshore wind development on the east coast of the United States with uh, the Scandinavian uh, uh, wind company Orsted, who's the dominant player in the world. I'm talking about tens of thousands of jobs, very good jobs, right? So we, so we, you know, we changed the paradigm of of. Uh, renewable energy jobs from, you know, the minimum wage guy going around trying to sell you rooftop solar yeah. to a highly paid union construction worker building an offshore wind, uh, 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 building and maintaining offshore wind uh, uh, yeah. stuff. And the supply chain, right? And the supply, like, you know, where's, you know, where the parts coming from and all that, right? It, it changes the, it changes the conception of what's going on. Mm -hmm. The labor movement's goal is good jobs for its members and yeah. for working people generally. Right. It's not an it's not an industry specific thing, no. right? But union leaders and their and and workers in the United States in recent years have had this experience of uh, the 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 legacy jobs that are creating a planetary crisis actually pay enough to lead a decent life yeah. and the jobs that create renewable energy resources over and over again end up being not very good jobs right, right. that is that threatens the planet right in a that gap threatens the planet in the context of of democracies right right and that you know and that's got to change and and there's nobody i think in the public policy world, no political leader in the in the world who's done more to try to close that gap than Joe Biden, mm. um, and, and uh, this is heroic work. Um, uh, but I will I will say because you mentioned my other lecture, the best example of how to deal with the really hard stuff, right here, and an example the Democratic Party ought to look closely at 
is the, is the German coal agreement. The, the German coal agreement is the most sophisticated and aggressive effort to really, to really get to the, the, the heart of the matter. Uh, it, the German coal agreement is uh, an agreement negotiated in 2019 between the German coal companies, the German labor movement, the, the, the German states, the lender where the coal industry is, the German federal government, the environmental movement, the German science institutes. I mean, I, really, yeah, really, like an all society kind of agreement to close the German coal industry completely uh, by 2038. Um, now, now, some people think 2038 is too late, but that's not the point. The point is there. They did it. The point is they did it. And the point is that they that everybody bought into it, including the coal, including the coal miners, and uh, and and it has stuck. Right. That was five. That was three years ago. Uh, the agreement stands. It, it it's not under attack. Uh, if any, and it's going to be reviewed, and they'll look at the timetable. Right. Sure. Uh, now, um, of course, all these things are under some pressure because of Ukraine. The point is that uh, that as a model for social decision making around climate and for ensuring that people's lives get better, that fighting climate change is not an impoverishing act, but an act of hope. Uh, is uh, th that's a great example. Uh, thank you for that. I guess I guess you said it was going to be a cynical answer. It was a cynical, but also a very. It was more of a, I'd say more of a realist answer. If we want to get really cynical, <laughs> we oh, should talk we about the Supreme Court. <laughs> oh, um, oh yes, right, right, uh, right, right. You, you know, I if, promised you guys I would talk about the Supreme Court an hour and a half ago. <laughs> if you weren't fatalistic enough about the environment, I mean, the the Supreme Court has recently, um, you know, issued a, a series of devastating rulings um and you wrote a great essay about it online i'll post a link at the end of the roberts court um and i want to i want to be hopeful where can we find hope in all of this and can you tell us a little bit about what's happening with the court right now because yeah. i think a lot of people mm -hmm. um a lot of people claim to be surprised some people said uh they thought the judges would not rule in such a way, and they were shocked and outraged. What's going on? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this, I mean, you know, the IIPP is a kind of a global institution, so this is going to be a little bit U.S.-centric, I'm afraid. Uh, and uh, I don't think we have time for me to give the full explanation for folks who are not— We uh, did a whole episode about Bulgaria, so don't worry. <laughs> oh, <okay>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, well, <laughs> this may be a little better known than, than the int intricacies of Bulgarian politics, uh, uh, which I actually know a tiny bit about, and they're very intricate. <laughs> um, uh, 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 all right, so um, the U.S. Supreme Court is a court of nine justices, and unlike, say, in the United Kingdom, the, the Supreme Court interprets the U.S. Constitution, and what the Supreme Court says the Constitution means is pretty much what it means. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, we, and our Constitution is a written document, right? So it's very different than the United Kingdom. Um, the, 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 in the last couple of months, uh, well, it's actually probably the last couple of weeks, the, the Supreme Court uh, issued a series of opinions that radically altered in a kind of right-wing direction the shape of American law. Um, and these opinions followed 
a set of earlier, less well-known opinions that did significant damage to American law in other areas. Um, the opinions of the last few weeks uh, that I think caused a, a really a sea change in American in the Amer in American legal system and its relationship to American society are first uh, and most I think uh, most importantly and, and for multiple reasons the, the Supreme Court overruled a case that they decided that the court decided in the, in the early 1970s Roe v. Wade which in, in Roe v. Wade the Supreme Court found that uh, American women had a constitutional right to have an abortion uh, that that states could not pass laws making abortion illegal in the first and second trimesters. Um, that that's a hugely important decision in American law, uh, and uh, it was based on the Supreme Court's reading of the Constitution as a whole, uh, and their and, and their finding that there were and this finding predated the Roe decision, but they found that the that the Constitution as a whole created a, a general right to privacy, mm -hmm. and that that and that. Uh, abortion was encompassed in the right to privacy. Uh, two, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, the, the Supreme Court overturned the Roe decision and said there is no, there is no constitutional right to an abortion. Um, so that, that was decision one, right? Uh, uh, hu hu a decision of, with huge consequences, uh, uh, which are, we we're just beginning to find out what they are. Uh, decision two was a decision that, about guns. Mm -hmm. uh, the Supreme Court found that a New York, a very old New York State law um, uh, uh, regulating the possession of, of handguns, uh, of guns uh, 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 in public, um, and largely barring the carrying of weapons in public, violated the Constitution's guarantee of the right to bear arms. Mm -hmm. Now. The thing to understand about this is that the Constitution's provision about the right to bear arms had been understood for hundreds of years as me as meaning that the states had the right to form militias, right? National guards. Mm -hmm. The states had the right to form their own militaries under military discipline and to maintain and to have those militaries be armed. Mm -hmm. right? Every state in the United States has a national guard. Right? This court. Uh, found a few years ago that no, that's not what it meant. It meant that each individual has a right to carry a gun, uh, and this has now been expanded to be the idea that each that every individual has the right to carry a gun in public. Um, mm -hmm. uh, at least that's what it sort of appears to be. Mm -hmm. um, that, in the context of the rising level of violence with guns in the United States, is causing a lot of alarm. The third decision about climate change uh, was a decision that the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal agency that regulates pollution in the United States, does not have the ability to issue regulations broadly controlling carbon emissions in the power sector. That, that even though the, the words of the statute that Congress passed would appear to give them that power, that there is an unspoken thing, there's a they sort of invented a legal doctrine that that regulatory agencies don't have the right to do things that would have major impact on the economy or the society without going back to Congress. Right? Now, that that idea does not exist in the Constitution and is not is it's not in the text of the Constitution. 
and is not um, and is flatly contrary to the way that Congress wrote the statutes. That that approach to the law in the EPA case is co- flatly contrary to their approach to the law in the abortion case. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's no consist. It's not just that these are all incredibly destructive. If you think about like what is actually happening in the world, each of these cases is extraordinarily destructive and divisive. It's that they don't represent a consistent or coherent way of doing law. Right. Right. So that you have you have both a court that appears bent on a seri- on making radical outcome driven decisions, <laughs> and that in a way that would lead one to say, well, what what exactly is the American legal system? What 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 um, neutral principles inform this process? Yeah. Or is it just whatever you guys feel like, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the problem. All right. Now you asked me, what what hope? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where can we find hope? Yeah. And here I think it's really important to look at history. Right. The American, the American political system. Uh, has its vulnerabilities, as all political systems do, right? I mean, we're sitting all here in London, right? The clearly, the British political system has some vulnerabilities. <laughs> it's everything's going great over here. Don't worry, right? They're going to pick an here in the United Kingdom. For those who aren't familiar with it, they're going to they're going to pick a new prime minister, and the people who are going to do the picking are two hundred thousand members of the Tory party, whose average age is seventy two. <laughs> and the rest of the 70 million people in the UK have no say in it. <laughs> now, that's a peculiar thing, but and that's a vulnerability and we saw what that vulnerability produced in Boris Johnson. The United States system has vulnerabilities and one of them is that if the Supreme Court is captured by a reactionary faction, right, that is bent on trying to um that is bent on trying to um, thwart the will of the public, yeah. essentially, and impose their peculiar views. Um, and and fundamentally, that when this happens, it it tends to have an anti-democratic, and I don't mean Democratic Party, I mean democracy. Yeah. It tends to have an anti-democratic tone to it. If that when that that if the court is captured in that way, it's very hard to do anything about it in the short term because of the court's role interpreting our constitution, right? Um, but it has happened twice before and uh, in, in really serious ways, and, the, and it was undone. The, 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 the Supreme Court's, the efforts of this kind of faction yeah. to, to use the Supreme Court as a, as a, mean, as a, as a, as a tool in a, in a Sort of ideological political struggle, yeah. as opposed to as an instrument of law. When that there, it was settled in two different ways, and it's really instructive to understand what those two ways were and understand what it is we have to do now. Some would say there was a third time that, in the very early history of the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court tried to um, thwart universal suffrage in the United States uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, but. It didn't really. The Supreme Court didn't really try to do that. It, it, it's clear that its intentions were in that direction, but that's not really what happened. And so the, the, a big crisis didn't really occur there. The first real conflict of this kind happened in the 1850s and had a catastrophic consequence. Right? 
But in the end, the Supreme Court was not successful. In the 1850s, a growing majority of white Americans were uncomfortable with the expansion of slavery in the United States and, and, the growing, and what they perceived to be the growing political power of slaveholders over the federal government. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the political context that produced Abraham Lincoln as a politician. At the same time, <laughs> lest we forget, all African Americans were against slavery. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you added those two groups of people together, and you got a substantial majority of the American population wanted to see slavery either constrained or abolished. Mm-hmm. And in that context, um, there were various laws passed seeking to constrain the growth of slavery in the United States. The Supreme Court was a majority of slaveholders and sympathizers of slaveholders, and they sought to overturn those laws. And in particular, and this unfortunately has real echoes of what's happening now around Mm -hmm. abortion rights. In particular, the fact that the United States was, as Abraham Lincoln said, half slave and half free, created a crisis around the enforceability of laws across states, yep. right? Mm. So slaves would escape from slavery and cross into free states and then say, hey, I'm free. Mm-hmm. I'm in a state where slavery is illegal. I am free. Their owners would then come to those states, often with armed gangs, yeah. and say, no, you're not, right? That You're my property under the laws of my state, and this state is obligated under our under our federal constitution to enforce my the laws of to of my state right so which is true right the 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 in general as a legal matter states are supposed to respect each other's laws right mm-hmm. um, so this question was tested by a sl- an escaped slave uh, dred scott he essentially been kidnapped by the man who purported to be his owner and uh, and it's important to remember i think uh, something that my professor Orlando Patterson taught me at Harvard a long time ago. No human being can own another human being. Yeah. <laughs> that's not actually, <laughs> no matter what anybody says, that's not true. But anyway, th- so Dred Scott went to court and he said, I have the right to full due process, right? He can't just kidnap me and take me away. And I can't be put in a jail without due process, right? We yeah. have to have a trial and all this kind of thing. Supreme Court found in the Dred Scott decision, written by a man named Taney, Justice Taney, that Dred Scott was not a human being. And therefore, all the legal words that talked about human beings didn't apply to him. That decision um, was an important triggering event in the Civil War. Because what it led anti-slavery advocates in the North to conclude was, and in particular, John Brown, uh, to conclude was that the only way that the slave power had taken control of the federal government mm-hmm. and that there was no way out other than violence. John Brown began organizing, began the organizing that led to his attempt to, to ignite a slave revolt. That led Southerners to conclude that, that the North, and, and, and John Brown was funded by wealthy people in Boston and New York and you know important, powerful people in the North Important powerful people in the North concluded that slaveholders intended to strangle American democracy. Southern slaveholders decided that the Northerners wanted them murdered in their beds. Uh, you know, things escalated to civil war. Yeah. Right? When Lincoln was elected president by the people who were offended by the Dred Scott decision, 
white Southerners concluded that, that, that they were under mortal threat, or at least the slaveholders did, and, mm -hmm. they, and they seceded and went to war. Taney remained the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and his voting majority remained in place when the war began. And he issued orders prohibiting the freeing of slaves by Union troops. And Lincoln said, that's nice, but, <laughs> but we're not doing anything you say. Yeah. <laughs> and when, you, and when, when last I checked, I'm the Commander-in-Chief of the Army, and you're not. Right? <laughs> and, and effectively, the, effectively uh, and then in, in, when the war ended and Lincoln was killed and a, pro, and a relatively pro-slavery vice president, Andrew Johnson, became president, the Congress shrunk the Supreme Court in order to effectively prevent Johnson from perpetuating Taney's majority. Yeah. And, a, and, a, and effectively a new court was put in place. That new court, at least for a while, uh, signed off on Reconstruction and the freeing of the slaves and the new constitutional amendments. And that, that court just backed off. That court, it was just like, all right, we're not, we're not in this business anymore. We're out. And of course, you know, <laughs> the anti-slavery majority that existed at the time of the Dred Scott decision, right, won a civil war, mm -hmm. right? The, the Supreme Court basically said, there's an anti-slavery majority. Slaves are asserting their legal rights. We're going to, like, push back on them as hard as we possibly can, right? And we're going to say, these people aren't human beings, and slavery trumps, and slavery is written in the Constitution, and, like, you can't do anything about it. And the majority that was anti-slavery, right, and it's really important to include African Americans in this majority, because as we began this interview, African Americans were the soldiers who ultimately took Richmond, yeah. right? Yeah. right? The, the views of African Americans ended up mattering a lot here, mm -hmm. right? The majority of the country that opposed slavery won a civil war, and the Supreme Court was then kind of no longer relevant, mm -hmm. right? And justices were replaced and that kind of thing. Now, that is not what we want. <laughs> I was going to say, you think we can do it again without a war? war. Is that, a civil war? that is not what we want. Yeah. But we need to understand that these people are threatening those kinds of dynamics, right? That particularly these issues about the states yeah. and the states honoring each other's laws have been put in play by the Supreme Court around abortion. And the last time they did that in this way was... Uh, was Dred Scott. Right. Now, second example, which is more like what we want. Okay. In the late 19th century, essentially business interests got control of the Supreme Court. And they found that the Constitution essentially prohibited either the states or the federal government from regulating the economy. Right. They invented a constitutional right of freedom of contract. Right, okay. that that right doesn't exist in the Constitution, but they they made it up. It, 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 the 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 case by which this is known is a case called Lochner versus New York. The state of New York wanted to ban child labor. Right, uh, Lochner, who was an employer of children, filed the case, filed a suit in the Supreme Court, said, "I have a constitutional right to employ children if they're willing to work for me," and the Supreme Court said that that he did. The Lochner era court blocked you know, sort of basic modern economic regulation in the United States up until the Depression and the New Deal. The court didn't need to do a lot of work because right-wingers controlled American politics at the national level during the 1920s. But in the Depression, Roosevelt wins. He, he creates a whole, 
whole landscape of economic regulation designed to deal with the complete collapse of the economy. Mm-hmm. That legislation is passed in 1933. In 1935, I think it is, in 1935, or it was 35 or 36, mm-hmm. the cases, the lawsuits about that regulation reached the Supreme Court, and they, and citing the Lochner cases and other things, they overturn the basic structure of the New Deal. And that included laws around minimum wage and, and right to organize unions and uh, a variety of other things. So at that point, the court has once again, as it did in Dred Scott, the court has set itself against the, the clear, I mean, Roosevelt won on a huge landslide. I mean, the American people wanted action on the yeah. Depression. The, 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 the New Deal was very popular. Um, it was clearly necessary for the United States to function as a society. And the court said no. So Roosevelt then runs for re-election in 1936, and he says, I'm doubling down. Essentially, the malefactors of great wealth are attacking me, attacking you, right? He, he runs a very left-wing campaign in 1936. He, he, he talks about all the things that we now enjoy, social security, minimum wage, overtime, ban on child labor, right to organize a union, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, help for farmers. I mean, just like this long, he says, this is my agenda. He wins a huge victory. I mean, he wins a bigger victory than he won in 32, right? Overwhelming control of Congress, massive, massive victory. And, and, and then he says, I'm going to, he says, I, I've had it with the court. I've, I've had it. We're going to have new, Congress has the right to set the size of the court. Uh, public wants this. So now we're going to have a bigger court. We're going to expand the court. Yeah. Lots of justices. And, while he does that, he passes all this legislation. He passes this, the, 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 the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act and the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and he passes all the legislation, which is not going to get challenged in the courts. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, states are passing similar pieces of legislation. It's, it's all going to the Supreme Court, yeah. and everybody expects the Supreme Court to knock it down. As the substantive legislation is moving, the court packing legislation is also moving. (laughs) (laughs) Congress, particularly Southern senators, are are uneasy with packing the court, even though you may recall, or perhaps you may recall, as I said earlier, uh, Congress had shrunk the court uh, during the post-Civil War period Mm -hmm. in order to essentially ensure that slaveholders didn't didn't maintain control of the court. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to expand it, right? Now they shrunk it, now we expand it. Uh, Congress was uneasy with that. And a lot of the press, who were fairly hostile to Roosevelt anyway, sort of were pounding on this thing of like, this is attack on the Constitution, this kind of stuff. Massive strikes are going on in the United States at this time. Right? The, essentially, the, auto indust- the factory occupations and the auto industry uh, are everywhere. You've got You've got troops lined up in front of GM plants in Flint and Detroit, wow. right? Workers barricaded inside, uh, street battles in Minneapolis and San Francisco. Je- Minneapolis and San Francisco both have general strikes during this period um, and running fights with the police. There, there, there are soldiers on, uh, in the streets of small towns in Iowa where the, where the packing workers are on strike. Yeah. I mean, the whole country is like boiling while this is going on. Um, and one of the bills that's right in front of them is the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act. Is every expectation the court knocks these laws down, and then they just fight it out in the streets, right? I, I mean, you know, I mean, because that's what's going on. I mean, the the whole thing is just boiling. 
there's a case on a minimum wage that comes from California that becomes the first case in front of the court. In the oral argument, it appears that the court is going to knock it down and cite Lochner. But when it comes out, one justice flips, and Lochner is effectively overturned by that one justice changing his mind. I'm not an expert on the history of this, but it is generally believed that Roosevelt got to him somehow. Okay. Right? (laughs) And then a bunch of people resigned. Yeah. A bunch of justices resigned. Roosevelt appointed new justices. The court packing scheme failed, but Roosevelt got the result he wanted. The court completely shifted its ideology. Uh, By the way, the Lochner court was also the Plessy versus Ferguson court. It was also the court that held that segregation was okay, even though it was clear that the Constitution had been amended to prohibit racism. They found the opposite. The court that, so the Lochner court and the Plessy court, it's the same court. The Lochner Plessy court is essentially restructured by Roosevelt. And the the whole fabric of American law is then turned. Right. It begins by finding the New Deal legislation uh, constitutional and ends with Brown versus Board of Education and with Griswold, which is the decision that fa- finds that people have a right to birth control, and Roe. Mm-hmm. Right? The American legal order is restructured at that moment. Now, not a civil war. The court wasn't actually packed. Mm-hmm. But enough political, legal, social pressure was brought to bear that everything changed. Now, I'm, I would argue that we are in that kind of situation, mm-hmm. that public anger and opposition to what the Supreme Court is doing is over 60%, and the court may likely push it further, right? And we now are going to have to do a refounding of the court. That refounding does not have to be legislative. It can be political in the broadest sense. This may be my human optimism, but I think there are justices who have done the wrong thing here in a huge way, who may find in the fullness of time that they want to be a different person. Um, I think there's one in particular. Uh, And I think that things have a way of unfolding. Opportunities tend to come into place, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no way to do it without a huge effort, a huge intellectual effort. We, we, We need to rethink what does the Constitution mean? These people are playing a very dishonest game. They have a hidden set of political opinions yeah. and they're just like reaching for stuff to, to justify it. There's no, I don't know how you teach law school after these, after these <laughs> decisions. I don't know what you say. I don't know how you, find, how, how you make sense of this body of work, right? In the way that I was taught law. I mean, yeah. I was taught law based on a coherent kind of idea about how to think about the legal system, which would appear to flow from case to case to case. Yeah. I don't know what you do with this, mm-hmm. right? So the law has to be re, re the, the, what, what the American Constitution is has to be refounded, just as it was during the, the New Deal post Lochner period, right? right? When it was reconstructed, law professors were involved in that, journalists were involved in that, um, uh, ordinary people were involved in that in different ways. Judges, people in the interstices of the legal system, were involved in that, and. Mm. We need to do something similar. And there are people listening to this podcast who, who can and should be involved in it. I have great reason for hope around these things. But, but like as somebody, as somebody says, freedom isn't free, right? The, 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 the effort to try to govern the country 
according to some fantasy of how it was governed in you know 1790 yeah, or, no. or you know by looking for by mining ancient documents written by slaveholders for notions of what our law should be like that is a bankrupt exercise yeah and we need to replace it with something else that's going to be a fight but it doesn't have to be we don't have to just accept it and we don't have to think that like catastrophe is going to follow there is a roadmap for how to do this it's happened before and democracy has triumphed right and so the question in front of us is uh, as we've talked about earlier in this podcast what are we going to do right what are we going to do and the role in this matter for intellectuals particularly for legal intellectuals is huge it's really important people who are interested in this need to think about what should the constitution mean what does this document mean in america in the world in 2022 or in 2020 or in 2030 this is not going to be we're not going to solve this overnight no right but also i think we need to understand that part of this is going to be a matter of social protest sure. right it was in 1857 yeah. and it was in 1936 right it really mattered that it was obvious to anybody with a brain that what the supreme court was doing was creating an ungovernable society right and I think we're going to find that this court is also bent on creating an ungovernable society. I, I believe that's the, when you look at the legal consequences of what they're doing, it's, yeah. it, it's encouraging a situation that no American should want. Right? And, and, and in that respect, I'm saying it doesn't matter what you think about abortion. Right? The idea of, of national disunity is, is unacceptable. Right. Just got to keep the pressure on and not not lose hope and all of that and the history is very instructive in giving us ideas on how to bring that about yeah. so. one of the most important per reasons to study history is so that you don't lose hope mm -hmm. right yeah. and understand that people have faced the kinds of problems that you face in the past and have triumphed right people just like you right that 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 you know you're not hopeless in the face of of unaccountable power uh, you're not, and and and, and uh, if you think it's bad, other people have faced worse, right? <laughs> right. and and won, right? Yeah. Very very important thing to know. Well, Damon, we are way over time, but thank you so <laughs> much for being so generous with your time and for fighting the good fight for the workers up up till today. And um, yeah, I really really appreciate you sitting down with us. Well, it's a great great pleasure, guys. Uh, and and um, I'll just close by saying I believe that what students like yourselves do at IIPP is really important, right? It is, I, it is when I talked about American law, you could say the same thing about climate change, you could say the same thing about democracy and government itself, that the work that students do here matters. It matters a lot. And as you and your colleagues make your way through to the master's programs, <laughs> sometimes these things can feel hard, that it's worth doing. And it's a gateway to you know lives you can have of you know intense meaning yeah of, and purpose so knock on wood thank you <laughs> thank i'm you, inspired Damon. yeah very much so <laughs> thank you thank you so All much right.